Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to AOA here as we start the week on Monday, April 4th. Looking out at the rest of the show today, we are going to have a lot to discuss. We'll be talking weather with our friend John Baranek of DTN Weather here in segment two. There are some red flag warnings out today, folks. If you're planning on some pasture burning, stay tuned. Let's listen to John first. Then in segment three, we're going to talk with Jackie Fatka. Jackie is the policy editor over at Farm Progress. She keeps an eye on everything happening in Washington. Washington, D.C. She'll join us here in segment three. But before we get into all of that, we are going to talk some more about the markets. They are rallying today. Commodities, ag commodities in particular, up big on uh, some additional risk that's presented itself over in the Ukraine. Traders are looking to hedge some of that. We've got energy up, grains up, pretty much everything except feeder cattle and lean hogs are higher today. One group that has been watching these moves very closely is the U.S. Soybean Export Council. After the prospective plantings report released last week, they held a webinar. And joining me to talk about the webinar and the things they have been learning is Mr. Mac Marshall. He is their director of market intelligence. Mac, thanks for joining us today. Hey, good morning, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Let's talk about the planting intentions report. We saw the USDA say that for only the third time in U.S. history, we're going to plant more soybean acres than corn acres in 2022. Mac, was that a surprise to you folks at USEC? Well, I think across the board, going into you know this planting season and the intentions report, um, the market was really calling for you know more plantings of really all the major broadacre crops, certainly corn, soy, and wheat. You saw the significant price rallies over the last couple months. So you know there was a large expectation that we were going to see more bean acres relative to last year. And I think you know adding to the rationale for for having more acres this year is certainly the fertilizer issue, um, where you know, you talk to any producer, the, the costs have just absolutely skyrocketed over the last several months as more and more, you know, as you mentioned, you know, risk premiums have, have kind of trickled into the market. And uh, with that, um, you know, growers are feeling the pinch on margins, uh, certainly on the cost side. And in those environments, you, you want to look for, um, you know, crops that are going to, uh, you know, going to you know, provide a little bit of uh, mitigation on that side. And that's certainly soy. It's not as thirsty as, as some of the others. But, uh, you know, it's also against the backdrop of pretty palpable rural demand. And that's, uh, you need those two to come together. And that's really what we've been seeing in terms of price and the market signals to bring more soy in this season. Yeah, yeah, the market is working. Mac, I think is the moral here. As you think about the the Outlook webinar you guys held, you spoke to three different growers from across the country. Are you noticing specific geographies where we could see an increase in soy acres more than in other places? Well, I think it depends on local agronomy, right? I mean, you talk to, you know, some of our farmers who are, you know, really in the Corn Belt. We had that represented on the webinar last week. Uh, you know, by and large, um, Farmers are trying to stick as close as they can to the rotation, uh, you know, typical corn-soy rotation for agronomic reasons. Um, and, and that, you know, uh, certainly gets stretched and challenged in times when you have such high input costs, particularly on the fertilizer side. Um, but you look, uh, you look, you know, beyond the corn belt to other parts of the country. We had a farmer on from, uh, from Tennessee where, you know, you, know, you can certainly plant cotton as well. And you saw an uptick in cotton acreage down there. And then, um, you know, if you go to the Dakotas, um, it's, it's a pretty diverse cropping area where you've got a lot of options. It's not just corn, beans, and wheat, but, of course, uh, you know, smaller uh, grains and pulse crops. And, you know, across the board, we saw area you know, uh, go up uh, there, too. You know, again, not just uh, on the bean side, but in some of the smaller uh, crops as well. So it, it, it really depends just on what, um, you know, what climactic zone you're in and, uh, you know, the traditional options that you have available for cropping. I mean, by and large, we want to be in a position where our farmers, you know, have as many options as possible. So, um, you know, seeing, uh, seeing where markets are, how farmers are responding to them across the country, and, of course, um, seeing that there's this, this ample growth in, in soybean area, um, that's, that's pretty, uh, you know, pretty fantastic to see. 
It's fantastic to see, but Mac, anytime we see a growth in production of any commodity, the fears arise that we'll overproduce, right? And we'll we'll outstrip demand and we'll see prices come down. You're on the demand side, the U.S. Soybean Export Council. You track these things every single day. As you look out through 2022 on the demand side, particularly for exports, Mac, what are you seeing? Do we have enough demand to justify this increase in acreage? Oh, definitely. And, it, and it's it's diversified across export demand and domestic as well. I mean, certainly one of the prevailing stories that we've seen over the last year and a half is, you know, this significant expansion in crush capacity across the U.S. I think by last count, you know, there's 13 new plants coming online just by the end of 2025. And, um, you know, having the incremental production to flow into that um, as we're having, you know, uh, you know, expansion of, of, of everything in crush, not just in traditional areas, but, um, you know, more and more in the Northern Plains, um, you know, that, that's, a, that's representative of a strong overall demand environment, um, you know, both for domestic crush. Uh, but of course, we're still going to be sending a lot of beans out to international markets. And, um, you know, uh, o- the overall picture, I think, for soy demand globally, be it whole beans, be it meal, be it oil, you know, remains, uh, you know, pretty robust. And I, and I think it's important to remember, too, that this particular season, you know, soy is a globally traded and produced commodity. And a lot of production has come off of global balance sheets these last couple months as we as the world has, you know, been managing through the drought in South America. So this, uh, you know, I feel like our farmers really you know, saw the market signals and recognized that, you know, the world is going to need the U.S. to produce a lot more beans this year simply because we have to balance out the the global supply situation. Um, Because, again, um, you know, the demand that you have both domestically and in in, in numbers of growing markets, um, you know, you can't just shut that demand off because there's a shortage in one part of the world. And, and that's where the U.S. Is, I think is really coming in this year with more acreage to uh, to help rebalance things. All right. And Mac, as you think about places where we've seen demand grow, one of those has been Mexico. Huge increase in soy imports over the past five or six years. I was curious, the president of Mexico has said they're going to ban GMO corn in that country in 2024. Have we heard any similar claims from them about soybeans? Is that a risk you're keeping an eye on? Now, there, I haven't heard any claims, uh, you know, on that front before, but I think it's also worth noting that, you know, there are other markets where um, there, you know, there, there's legislative um, or there's legislation in place that doesn't allow for cultivation of, of GM technology, but still allows for, you know, importation. You know, China, for example, um, only recently approved its first, you know, cultivation uh, GM traits, uh, but it's been importing GM soy for you know, for literally decades at this point, um, European unions the the same way. I mean, we we export a lot of soy and soy meal there, um, even though they, they don't necessarily cultivate uh, GM corn or soy in, in the EU as well. So it's 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 a it's a difference between local farming practices and you know what what the government might be imposing there versus um, you know what the overall needs are, and that's when you turn to um, trading partners such as the U.S. Indeed, they do. Mac, US, U.S. Soy Export Council runs webinars throughout the year. Can you tell folks where should they go if they want to tune in to the next one? Absolutely. So the next one we're going to have is after the May WASI, which comes out on May 12th. We'll be doing it at 7 o'clock Central. I encourage everyone to check out USEC.org and USSoy.org, where we'll have the registration links for that at 7 o'clock Central on May 12th. May 12, folks, get that on your calendar. Big thanks to Mac Marshall, Market Intelligence Director at USEC. And folks, stick with us. John Baranek of DTN Weather will join us when we return. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. There's a difference between field experts and experts in the field. At FS, we're experts in the field. Our crop specialists are driven to maximize every acre and bring the latest agronomic technologies and innovations to your farm. Whether recommending the appropriate hybrid or variety, nutrient management for optimum growth, or advice on disease and pest management, our crop specialists are always focused on pointing your operation forward. So visit FSSystem.com and let's get you headed towards your next success. FS, bringing you what's next. 
As planting season begins across the country, the American Seed Trade Association reminds farmers to follow the basic steps for seed treatment stewardship. Follow directions on seed container labeling. Eliminate weeds in the field prior to planting. Minimize dust by using advanced seed flow lubricants. Be aware of honeybees and hives located near the field. Ensure that any spilled seeds are removed or covered by soil to protect wildlife and the environment. And remove all treated seed left in equipment. For more information, visit seed-treatment-guide.com or contact your seed dealer. Mike Rowe here with a gentle reminder that civilization is held together by pipes, wires, and cables. It's true. There are over 5 million miles of gas lines, power lines, fiber optic lines, water lines, and sewer lines all buried beneath your feet. And every 60 seconds, somebody digs into one. Look, if you're thinking about digging around, do yourself a favor and call 811 first just to find out what's down there. Trust me. You don't want to find out the hard way. Call or click 811 before you dig and visit safeexcavator.com for more info. Tough 5EC is a selective contact post-emergent herbicide that synergizes HPPD inhibitors and enhances the effect of atrazine. Tough 5EC works fast and can significantly improve the control of weeds such as water hemp, palmer, and kochia today and help prevent the selection of herbicide resistance tomorrow. Tough 5EC is in stock and ready to ship. Ask your local retailer about Tough 5EC or visit BelgiumUSA.com. Always read and follow label instructions. 54. So, basically, it's too late to start saving for retirement, right? Not right. Starting to save, even in your 50s, can really make a difference. Well, right now, saving seems hard to wrap my head around. Plus, with the way this year's been going... <laughs> hey, listen, it's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three minutes. I like three minutes. Yeah. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle. I like that too. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Keeping farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. Mike Pearson here. Thanks for joining me today. You know, last week I had the chance to do a little road trip, uh, traveled through some farm country across the central corn belt, and I saw a lot of folks with machinery sitting outside the shed, saw a few people pressure washing some planters, getting everything tuned up. Spring is in the air and with it the risk of severe weather looking out to the week ahead joining me now is john baranek of dtn weather john thanks for taking the time to talk with us today oh i appreciate you having me on mike always good to talk to you before we get into what could be coming later on this week john i understand there are some concerns about fire damage today or fire risk today do you have an update who's at risk here with these red flag warnings yeah we've got red flag warnings uh basically in effect from um uh, New Mexico all the way up through the plains. Uh, so it's what we're really watching is is some strong winds are going to be moving through with the system this week. And, uh, you know, we're looking at wind gusts 50, 60, you know, uh, some unlucky folks are going to see probably some gusts over 70 miles an hour. Uh, so, uh, you know, anything that some of these areas are real dry, uh, especially out in the western plains here where we haven't had a whole lot of precipitation in, in some areas. And, so the winds combined with the dryness and everything just kind of laying out around dead um, is all all good fuel to, to create a, uh, a fire hazard threat. Indeed it is, folks. If you're thinking of burning off some pasture, let's wait a minute if you're out there in the plains. John, with this wind event coming through, you mentioned it's traveling with a system. What is the system going to do here across the country? Yeah, so we actually have kind of two systems moving across the country. One's actually across the south. We're, we're going to have a, a system, uh, kind of a weird little cold front here, draping through Oklahoma and Texas, and a uh, little, little system's going to form on that here later today and really induce a severe weather threat across the south uh, for today and tomorrow. 
Uh, but that second system is the stronger one, and that's the one that's carrying the wind threat. Um, we'll see uh, a cold front kind of march its way through the country. Again, we'll have another severe threat potentially up in the Midwest, but more likely down in the southeast uh, and Delta regions here on uh, probably Wednesday is the most likely day for that. But uh, the system's going to just kind of pinwheel its way, a little pressure center, just pinwheel its way through uh, the northern plains and Midwest for the rest of the week. And it'll continue to produce some showers uh, along the backside of that for several days after that cold front initially comes through. So we're going to see some, uh, some decent snowfall amounts up here in Minnesota, maybe in the eastern Dakotas as well. Um, but uh, for the most part here, not expecting a whole lot of, of snowfall, but Colder, colder air is following in behind the system, probably about a good 10 degrees below normal is what we're looking at for, for most areas. And what day did you expect that snow to come through there in the northern plains, John? That's going to start on Wednesday? Uh, yeah, for the most part. I mean, there may be a little bit here yet on Tuesday, but we really need to wrap that cold air around a little bit to get a lot of this to turn over. You know, you know now that we're getting into April, it's getting harder to get snow, but uh you know, you know, even Minneapolis is is it's a rarity to not get any snowfall in the month of April. So, but we still need to wrap that cold air around to get the snow to fall. So, um, yeah, it's, it looks like more likely on Wednesday and Thursday for that to happen across the uh, the upper Midwest and, and uh, eastern Dakotas. And John, it sounds like again that continued severe threat is across the southeastern part of the U.S. I understand that now that the month of March has come to a close, the researchers are doing their counting. It sounds like we might have had a record March for tornado outbreaks. Do you see that severity continuing on as we get uh, the April calendar underway? Yeah, unfortunately, you know, we got, I already mentioned the system moving across the southeast here today and tomorrow, um, and, uh, you know, the additional one behind it for Wednesday. And uh, actually, next week is, is a, a good, really good setup for severe weather. Um, if you're fans of it, if you like to go chasing, you're going to have several days of it. Um, what we're going to see is a big ball of cold air just move into the west and park out there while we build up some heat in the east. And that sets up a storm track basically from the southwest or Four Corners regions all the way up into uh, southeast Canada and the northeast. And storm systems just love to track through there. We're going to see a couple of pieces of energy at least move through, maybe a couple of really big storm systems with that. Um, and that's going to induce, uh, I mean, that's just perfect setup for severe weather from basically the eastern plains or the I-35 corridor eastward uh, through the Midwest and the southeast. So um, we're going to have to buckle up for next week uh, in terms of severe weather. Uh, on the cold side of that, though, um, we are going to be looking at some potential for some heavy snowfall across the, the northern plains and into Minnesota, the upper Midwest, just depending on where those track is, where, who's going to get hit. But um, I have a hard time believing that we won't see a significant snowfall event next week somewhere. All right. You mentioned that big ball of moisture, John. That's, a, that's an analogy I love. A big ball of moisture setting up out west, looking at that four corner reasons to start setting things off. Does this lead to potentially some uh, uh, relief from the drought for our friends in the southern plains across the Oklahoma and Texas panhandles? Unfortunately, it looks like the, you know, really to get the, the, uh, the increased moisture, you got to be on the north side of the track of these systems that come through. And uh, what it looks like is at least right now, and this could change, but it looks like they're coming out of Eastern Colorado and moving into the Midwest that way. So areas south of that, which would include Southwest Kansas, all the way through the Texas Panhandle and Western Texas are unlikely to see anything. Now there may be something quick where we get a line of thunderstorms moving through, but usually they're just kind of developing there. So it's really spotty when those occur. And for, for the region, uh, it's looking like it's, you know, very unlikely to see any help uh, with, with the drought down there. You know, boy, John, and you know, I love to check in on this each week when we get the chance to talk, and that's La Nina. Last time we were on, it was just kind of stagnating, no big real movements one way or the other. Are we starting to see some movement on the La Nina-El Nino oscillation? Not at all, actually. Uh, it's been pretty steady over the last couple of months, and uh, if, if anything is you know, I've, I've been looking at it a little bit here, and uh, our American climate model really likes to continue this La Nina all the way uh, into next fall. And, uh, you know, that's not a particularly good sign. 
Um, but all, and all the rest of the models that are from around the world, like the Australian models, the European ones, there's there's a whole bunch of them have all been kind of getting us up to a neutral category um, at some point. But every single time we we kind of update this, and we kind of update this weekly or monthly, they keep delaying that uh, transition up to into a neutral state. So they're it, they're all kind of trending towards our American model, which is a little unusual. Um, it's a good sign if if you like. Uh, you know, if you're uh, having some national pride, but you know, it's not something we really want to see happen uh, across the growing regions. Right, John, and and let's explain why. If La Nina were to remain in effect as we get into that key summer growing region, June, July, and August, overall, does that mean drier and hotter across the Corn Belt? Across the Corn Belt, across the plains, pretty much the entire country except for the East Coast and West Coast. So. Uh, re- really what La Nina likes to do is set up a big ridge of high pressure across the middle of the country. And, uh, you know, underneath those high ridges of high pressure, it's usually very warm and very dry. So that doesn't mean it's going to be completely like that the entire summer, but it does uh, favor warmer than normal and uh, fewer precipitation events moving through. So, yeah, that's going to have us uh, as a, and a big concern um, moving forward. Uh, I, I, I really don't see any way around it uh, at this point. Um, you know, showers are still going to occur. They're just going to be less frequent and less heavy. All right. We will be keeping an eye closely on that situation as it develops. John, another situation we're still watching, of course, is the South American corn growing weather. We're getting close to pollination down there in South America. How do the temps look? Temps look okay, um, as long as it's raining. If it's not raining, those those temperatures really soar up into the middle and upper 90s. So, um, you know, that's not really what you want to see. And, you know, so far uh, during the growing season, it's been some pretty good conditions here for uh, growing corn early. Um, You know, as you mentioned, we're starting to get close to that pollination period here, especially in the central portions of the country. And and showers have gone very isolated, and they will continue to be so for at least the next 10, uh, least least the next week. uh, you know, that's going to cause these corn plants to start drawing out that subsoil moisture a little early. Typically, what they like to do is build that or maintain it through the month of April before the wet season ends here at the end of the month or early in, in May. And, uh, you know, they'll be in their pollination period at that point. And early grain fill period, they, they usually fill out pretty nicely. But, you know, with the showers going isolated, that subsoil moisture starting to fall. If we don't get some good rainfall here in the middle of the month, we could be looking at some dryness and moisture stress for uh, when those crops are starting to pollinate. Might not have enough fuel in the tank to make it to the finish line. We'll continue to have you update us on that situation. John Baranek of DTN Weather, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me on, Mike. It's a real pleasure. And folks, stick around. When we return, Jackie Fatka, policy editor with Farm Progress, joins the show. and We'll talk about what's happening in Washington, D.C. Stay with us on AOA. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we examine how the modern cooperative system solves today's biggest challenges. We'll be talking to CHS experts and farmers and ranchers just like you. And we'll learn how cooperatives apply innovation and technology to help co-op owners get more value every day. Join us Around the Table every Tuesday or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Young farmers don't listen to the radio, right? Wrong. In a recent survey, 74% of young producers said they get their most important agricultural information from their trusted farm radio station. Surprised? Don't be. If you think about it, it makes perfect sense. Radio is the perfect companion because it goes with you everywhere. Whether you're in the shop, on the combine, or in the truck, farm radio is right there with you. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Well, as we come into Monday's trade, we're mostly higher in the grain markets, although we are backing a little bit off session highs, maybe a little bit of profit taking. Over the weekend, we saw corn sales to China, 1,084,000 metric tons of corn, 
to China with um, two-thirds of that for the current old crop marketing year, the rest of it for the 22-23 marketing year. So a big corn sale there to China over the weekend. And as we look at the markets here, we're seeing that uh, you know the market's still kind of adjusting to Thursday's USDA reports, which refocused the trade on the supply and demand fundamentals for quarter beans as well as spring wheat. Market now trying to influence the shift in planting attentions, most notably the global corn balance sheet much tighter with U.S. acreage down notably. Ukraine absent and Brazil's forecast shifting drier for pollination of the safrina corn crop. Now, China has been absent from the U.S. corn market until here this weekend with that big sale that we saw announced here on Monday morning. Crude oil is up over 3% here as we are back above $100 a barrel, up 401 at 103.28 this hour. View the numbers on the board. May corn up 7 at a quarter, 742 at a quarter. December 8 higher, 696. May beans up 14, 1596 at three quarters. November up 18 at a quarter, 1425. May bean meal up 390 a ton, 453.90. May bean oil up 51.7171. Chicago wheat may up 16 at 10 and a half. May Kansas City wheat up 18 to three quarters, 1031 to three quarters. May spring wheat up 11 at 1076 at a quarter. April live cattle up 12, 138.77. June up 30, 136.15. April feeder cattle down 7, 161.50. Lean hogs for April currently down 92 at 137. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen. You are not your diagnosis. A medical chart is not your identity. And vision loss does not define you. Your drive shows who you are. And you are not alone. Because we are driven too. To be a beacon of strength. A champion of courage an advocate for hope. You are not alone. Because we are stronger together. We drive the research for the cures we are finding. We're fighting macular degeneration, retinitis pigmentosa, Usher syndrome, and the entire spectrum of blinding retinal diseases. We fund. We fight. We win. We, we, we We are are the Foundation foundation Fighting fighting Blindness. Together, we are fighting blindness. Join the fight at fightingblindness.org. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Hello, folks. Thanks for tuning in to AOA here today. I know we've talked markets with Mac Marshall. We've talked weather with John Baranek. Now it's time to talk politics, or I should say to talk policy. To do that, joining us is Jackie Fatka. She's the policy editor with Farm Progress. And Jackie, thanks for taking the time to join us today. I don't want to talk politics, but I'd love to talk policy. Well, talking policy, Jackie, first off the bat, we have been discussing the Ocean Shipping Reform Act quite a bit. You discussed it last week when you were on. This week or this past week, we had a vote. How did it go? It went well. Um, it, it went in a voice vote across on the Senate floor. So now they're just uh, waiting to see how they're going to conference that. There are some differences between the House bill and the Senate bill. And so um, no conferees have been named yet, no official agenda on that, but very good sign that that was passed by a voice vote off the Senate floor. Um, and, and a lot of ag, ag folks are, are watching and waiting for that to hopefully cross the finish line because we've really seen uh, $4 billion in exports that have possibly been lost because of some of the issues um, with ocean shipping concerns and you know, the 22% loss sales. So there's there's a lot of impetus to try to get this across the finish line. Now, Jackie, it has been a few years since I have watched Schoolhouse Rock. So you're going to have to remind me, we passed a version in the House, we passed a different version in the Senate, they now go to conference, they'll work out the details, then do both houses, uh, Congress, uh, both houses of Congress need to vote on this again before it will go to Joe Biden's desk. Exactly. Very good job of the Schoolhouse Rock overview. Yes, it's passed in the House, it's passed in the Senate. They're different. 
So they will have to come out with what they call a a conference committee report, a a new bill essentially on what the two houses in the Senate agree to, and then they would take that through the House and Senate for a vote again. So if it has any changes again, but usually after it comes out of conference, you would have an up and down vote. So a lot of times what we get when we have farm bills, you know, often we would have something where they would be a conference um, because anytime there's a change that happens to the bill, it would have to go back. So this is likely to have a conference committee. It's not going to go back and, and be voted on by the House. They, they will have a conference to, to iron out the differences in the bill. All right. Well, we'll continue to keep an eye on this legislation. Jackie, another thing that I have heard discussed a lot, and I don't know if it's percolated into Washington, D.C., is the idea that we could be seeing a food shortage around the world this year. And as such, we should encourage production on all ground, including CRP ground. Are there calls to open up CRP ground for planting here in 22 or perhaps in 23? Yes, there's been calls. um, And really for the last uh, month, we've heard that. I mean, this is not necessarily a new call on the CRP, but, you know, an important thing with CRP is, is this a conservation program or is it a set-aside program? And I would argue that a lot of times, uh, we ha- a lot of times people maybe look at this as a set-aside program, but it really is a conservation program. And a lot of the land that is in CRP right now is not highly productive land. Now, that being said, uh, here in the last couple of weeks, some of the ag groups, National Grain and Feed Association, I think the American Farm Bureau was even part of that, uh, wanted to remind USDA that 26% of the land that is in the CRP is considered prime farmland. Um, And so, you know, I spoke with uh, Undersecretary Robert Bonney, USDA Undersecretary Robert Bonney, a couple weeks ago when I was at Commodity Classic, and I asked him exactly about that. And I don't think that they're willing to to make huge changes to the CRP program. Now, remember, anytime you have a CRP contract, you have the right to take out the land out of that contract and put it into production, but you would have to repay back any of your payments that you had received. So if you're in year nine of a 10-year contract, that's not going to make much sense. But if you're in year one or two of the contract, then maybe that is something with the prices today. Now, another thing that that we, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was going to say that makes sense, Jackie. Um, We do have about 4 million acres that are coming out this fall. So, um, you know, as I was talking last week with Chad Hart at Iowa State, you know, one lever that USDA might be able to pull They'll keep the conservation plans if they could bring that land out of production or they know that the contract was expiring this fall, give them a couple extra months to work that land so they could plant it to wheat because we know wheat is something that with Ukraine we might see a shortage of. The other thing too is we have some emergency grazing options within the CRP program. We could actually more easily take some hay ground put hay ground into production if we knew that we would have some emergency grazing opportunities on the CRP acres, which is becoming more common than it once was. So there's some lethers there without really fully taking CRP acres and canceling a a 10-year contract at like year five. There's still some ways to balance that and and maybe bring some more production online without really sacrificing some of those conservation benefits that we've seen with the program. Okay. All right. Well, we'll continue to watch that, Jackie, no doubt. But one of the major growing issues with regard to this potential food shortage globally is, of course, trade. We've got to get that trade, the food, the ag products into the hands of the folks who want to buy them. And to that end, U.S. Trade Rep Catherine Tai recently testified before the House Ways and Means Committee. Jackie, did she change anything about the Biden approach to trade? You know, we're just kind of hearing more of the same, but I think a, a, a continued solidification of that. Um, interestingly, she was at the House Ways and Means on Wednesday last week, and then she was actually before the Senate Finance Committee on Thursday. So was was before both chambers kind of outlining her trade agenda. You know, some of the main points uh, right now, there's a lot of discussion about the Indo-Pacific economic framework that the Biden administration is soliciting some input on. And there's some concerns about market access. And, you know, we are familiar with market access with with ag because we're used to needing to have more markets for our goods. And there's been a lot of criticism that this this Indo-Pacific framework 
does not have a focus on market access. And so, you know, Catherine Tai did some clarification of that, although there's not specific market access goals overall, you know, she really feels like this agenda can still improve market access. And sometimes just by having a, you know, we're used to free trade agreements. And she continued to say, you know, there are ways that we can further relationships without an actual free trade agreement. So we'll continue to watch to see how this unfolds. You know, there, there. we talked last week, there's been some ways that this administration has been able to use the tariffs or situations between just discussions between governments to break down some of those barriers. A lot of what ag deals with is not necessarily tariffs. You know, we don't have to deal with super high tariffs. Sometimes it's a SPS issue, you know, sanitary, sanitary issues, uh, what we like to call non-tariff barriers that are actually impending trade. And so sometimes you can do that with bilateral discussions that don't have to have a formal agreement that has to go through Congress because we know how long and cumbersome that can be too. So, you know, this is, we're, we're continuing just watching. We're going to see how this pulls out. Um, that that was the continued message in, in enforcement. You know, we've got to live up to these trade agreements and they've got to be living documents. They can't just be written and put up on a wall as a trophy, as she said. Yeah, they've got to be enforced. I think that is a good point. And I, I think a lot of folks were relieved to hear Catherine Ty say that. Jackie, as we're thinking about things coming from D.C., and then sometimes they do take some time, one of those things is some additional resources for uh, livestock producers, livestock disaster assistance. I understand USDA is releasing some more funds into that program. Can you give us some details? Yeah, there should be checks coming in the mail this week, actually. Um, part of what was last fall, uh, there was uh, disaster aid that was for crop producers, but also 750,000 specifically targeted for livestock producers. And uh, they have their first phase that will actually be going out right now. And this is to help with a lot of those folks who are dealing with drought, who had to buy feed or transport it in or had high feed costs because of the drought. And so this is, is hopefully going to give a lifeline to some livestock producers who have been dealt uh, a poor hand here in the last year. And so this is um, about 100,000 producers, 670,000 will go out in this first one. And mostly the people that are, it, they're also trying to streamline the process. And so if they'd actually already had some paperwork in, this is actually going to give an extra boost of money out there for some of this, this money to help with the forage feed costs that that came about because of the drought and then we'll have the next phase here in the next couple of weeks too okay so that was my question is this isn't the last check mailing to come from this program jackie there should be yet another one on the horizon we just don't have the details is that right so right so basically this first installment was anybody who has already applied for some disaster assistance so this is actually kind of another layer but then they're going to try to extend that any gaps that they might have had so there's some extra money. Um, and then we will have more details about the crop uh, part of it. And that is actually $10 billion with the crop disaster program. And there was a lot of hope that they would have that out by May. So I would expect that here in the next month or so, uh, the additional details on the, the wildfire hurricane uh, assistance program. We know it as WIP, WIP Plus. Uh, this is basically the disaster payments that, that we'll hear about here in the next couple of weeks, I would assume. All right. Next couple of weeks, we'll continue watching for news out of D.C. And as that news breaks, we'll continue to turn to Jackie Fatka, the policy editor at Farm Progress, to join us and to fill us in. Jackie, thanks for talking to us today. Great talking with you. Thanks. And folks, stick around when AOA returns. We've got a couple of other headlines percolating in the world of agriculture that could impact your bottom line. So stay with us here on AOA. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. I'll take dig a little, learn a lot for 30 bushels. Soft and crumbly. Tom. How does healthy soil feel to the touch? Correct. Dig a little for 40 bushels. Sweet and 
and earthy. Tom. What does healthy soil smell like? Yes, go again. Dig a little for 50 bushels. Dark, porous, and alive. Tom. What does healthy soil look like? You win. Understanding the basics and benefits of healthy soil can make your farm a winner, too, through lower input costs, better yields, and drought protection, which can lead to a healthier bottom line for your business. Contact your local Natural Resources Conservation Service office today to find out how you can unlock the secrets in your soil. This message brought to you by USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service and this radio station. As an organ donor, your story doesn't have to end. The good in you can live on. In fact, you could save up to eight lives with your gifts. Your heart could keep beating. Your kidneys could keep filtering. And your intestines could keep on digesting for others. And that's not all. You can improve the lives of 50 more people as an eye and tissue donor, restoring sight and health. And you're not just helping out the person receiving the transplant. You're touching whole families with your life-saving gift. Register in minutes. Just go to organdonor.gov. You'll be happy you did. And just maybe, someone else will be happy too. Sign up today. Go to organdonor.gov. It saves lives. U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. Tough 5EC is a selective contact post-emergent herbicide that synergizes HPPD inhibitors and enhances the effect of atrazine. Tough 5EC works fast and can significantly improve the control of weeds such as water hemp, palmer, and kochia today and help prevent the selection of herbicide resistance tomorrow. Tough 5EC is in stock and ready to ship. Ask your local retailer about Tough 5EC or visit BelgiumUSA.com. Always read and follow label instructions. I get it, slip it, cuff it, check it twice a day. I get it, slip it, cuff it, check it in the morning and before dinner. I get it, slip it, cuff it, check it, and share it with my doctor. Nearly one in two U.S. adults have high blood pressure. That's why it's important to self-monitor your blood pressure in four easy-to-remember steps. It starts with a monitor. Now that I know my blood pressure numbers, I talked with my doctor. We're getting those numbers down. Get it, slip it, cuff it, check it. Talk to doctor now and share it. Be next to talk to your doctor about your blood pressure numbers. Get down with your blood pressure. Self-monitoring is power. Learn more at manageyourbp.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council, the American Heart Association, and the American Medical Association. In partnership with the Office of Minority Health and Health Resources and Services Administration. Soil, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Soil Ship Enterprise to explore soil life, to boldly grow where cover crops have never grown before. Farmer's Log, soil date 31655.4. We've come across some strange but incredibly helpful life forms. We didn't have to travel far to find them, but these organisms have proven invaluable on our trip through the solar system. They help feed us by nourishing and protecting our crops. They've built our soil structure to make it more resilient to the harsh weather we encounter. Our sensors indicate they're even helping us store carbon that plants take out of the atmosphere and put it back into the soil. Guess you can say our living and life-giving soil is the best thing to cling on to. Um, sorry. <laughs> That's soil fleet humor. <laughs> Visit your local USDA Natural Resources Conservation Service office today and learn more about the basics and benefits of soil health. This message brought to you by USDA and this radio station. On-road or off-road, you'll find the FS lubricant you need from our full line of premium quality products. At FS, our lubricants use the highest quality base oils and latest additive technology to meet and exceed most manufacturer specifications. Advanced protection against wear ensures you'll get maximum value from both your lubricant and equipment investments. Squeeze every bit of performance out of every piece of equipment you own. Let the FS energy specialists help you go further. Go further with FS. Visit GoFurtherWithFS.com for more information. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart.
keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, folks. Thanks for tuning in to AOA today. And we've talked about a lot of issues impacting agriculture. And this next headline that caught my attention isn't directly tied to agriculture, but it's sure going to impact all of us if you're planning to buy a car over the next couple of years. It was announced on Friday that uh, the Biden administration has announced a plan to boost fuel economy vehicles um, across the country. This is rolling back President Trump's um, rollback of of some of the earlier requirements that existed for fuel safety rules. These are the CAFE standards that we hear talked about. These were big jumps for the 2024 and 2025 model years, and then they looked out to 2026. Basically, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration said that they are going to require vehicles to have a fleet average that is 8% higher for 2024 and again by 2025, and then 10% improvement in fuel efficiency by 2026. The EPA says this shoots for a fleet-wide real-world average of about 40 miles per gallon required in 2026, required with what would have been 32 miles per gallon under the Trump rules. So obviously some folks are saying this isn't far enough. Some folks are saying this is way too far. At the end of the day, the, uh, the NHTSA estimates that with this increase in mileage, consumers are going to save about $1,387 in fuel costs over the life of a vehicle. However, they said these requirements are going to raise the average cost of a vehicle by about $1,087. So at the end of the day, we should be saving 300 bucks total over the cost of a lifetime of ownership of these vehicles. So do be prepared. We are still continuing to see this Biden administration focus hard on decarbonization and in uh, lowering the greenhouse gas emissions from vehicles. And I think this is just one other way in which we're seeing this administration's goals be brought to fruition. However, sometimes the goals of uh, party leaders, governmental leaders don't always mesh with the facts on the ground. And that's a situation that's developing in Europe. EU importers, grain importers have long balked at GMOs. They are not widely accepted in Europe. Most countries have restrictions on the importation of GMOs. And that's all well and good when Europe could turn to the Ukraine for producing about half of their import needs of non-GMO corn. Certainly, looking out to this growing season, even though we've heard reports that Ukrainian farmers might be putting actually more ground under cultivation than had initially been anticipated, green buyers in Europe are still very concerned about what might actually end up coming out of the Ukraine this year. So for the first time in about 20 years, we're starting to see European grain importers relax their standards on GMOs. The largest grain importer, excuse me, not the largest grain importer in Spain, the largest association of feed makers in Spain, CESFAC, has announced that they are importing corn from the U.S., Argentina, and Brazil over the next two weeks. They've got shipments arriving, and the government of Spain, I should say, is temporarily allowing these imports with traces of pesticides in order to help counteract the loss in supply from Ukraine. We're seeing this in Spain. We are probably going to see similar similar um, waivers of GMO restrictions as we look towards Germany, as we look towards several other countries in Central Europe. In fact, Denmark is another place that they're running out of non-GMO feed. And when it comes to watching their animals starve or importing GMO feeds, these farmers in Europe are going to be pushing very hard to import GMO feeds. This could open the door for greater discussions about U.S. imports into Europe long term once these shipments hit that market and interact safely with their food system in Europe. The Europeans have a lot more to be concerned about than just food, however, and that's natural gas supplies. We've been talking about this quite a bit. Russia has threatened to shut off the flow of natural gas into Europe unless they are paid for their gas in rubles, the currency of Russia. And so far, European nations have balked. And Europe has said they're not going to provide, excuse me, Russia has said they are not going to provide gas for free. They do want to get paid. The Europeans can't pay in euros thanks to the sanctions. As of right now here, as of this morning, it was announced that Russian gas deliveries are continuing steadily with where they were the week prior. So we're not seeing this become a major issue in the markets quite yet, though it is something we do need to keep an eye on. 
I also wanted to provide a quick update to a story we talked about a few weeks ago, and this was the shutdown of nickel trade at the London Metal Exchange. Of course, nickel used widely, notably in electric vehicles in their batteries, and the price of nickel exploded, got caught in a short squeeze here at the very first part of March, and it was crazy. The London Metal Exchange actually shut down nickel trading for four days. They canceled a bunch of trades. It set the world on edge about the safety and security of the LME. So to that, that end of things, the London Metal Exchange, of course, in the UK and the UK's Financial Conduct Authority and the Bank of England are going to review the LME's approach to its suspension of trading and to the resumption. And they're going to discuss which traders were picked and which got booted. And then the exchange itself is also going to start at independent review into the events that led to the suspension of trading in the nickel market. This will be a story that will have ramifications for markets all around the world in commodities because the move was so severe, so savage, and so fast. And the way the LME responded has really hurt volumes, trading volumes on that platform. We've seen a lot of traders kind of take their ball and go home after the trade uh, shut down here three weeks ago. It has resumed. Trade at nickel has been very volatile as of yet. Jackie Fatka mentioned the Indo-Pacific economic framework that's being discussed. We'll be discussing that more on the show over the coming weeks because it sounds like it is going to be a long-running focus with the Biden administration. We heard earlier this year, late last year, that India will now be accepting shipments of pork. But there's trouble over there in the Indo-Pacific region. There's currently a constitutional crisis in Pakistan, and uh, nobody quite knows how that's going to play out. It has not been able to grab a lot of headlines. Certainly the, the violence in Ukraine have have shoved this story out of the headlines. But if Pakistan were to become unrest or were to develop some unrest, remember it lies between Afghanistan, China, and India. Could have lasting impacts for our ag markets. We'll be discussing this as it continues to develop here on AOA. Folks, thank you so much for tuning in today. Please join us tomorrow. We're going to look at uh, Sunflower Outlook here in 2022, as well as talk a little bit about what's happening in the beef market. So tune in on Tuesday to AOA. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Okay, gotta be late. Gotta go, gotta go. Where'd I put... Ah, wallet. Check. And... Oh, phone. Uh, check. Keys. Check. Lunch. Check. Checking for the things you need doesn't take long. But what about checking for your safety? Right now, one in every five vehicles on the road has an open safety recall, but it only takes seconds to check for open recalls on your car at checktoprotect.org. All you need is your vehicle identification number or license plate number. Your automaker may not have the right information to notify you about recalls by mail, especially if you recently moved or drive an older or used car. Checktoprotect.org is the quick, easy way to find out if your vehicle has an open safety recall and find the closest dealer who can make the repair for free. Oh, oh, laptop. Check. Before you go, take a minute. Visit Checktoprotect.org. Check to Protect is a program of the National Safety Council.